We're beginning our new series, The Joyful Kingdom, this week. And uh, I'm going to launch straight in. I remember Mike and I, uh, a number of years ago now, went to serve some churches out in Malaysia. And uh, one of the things that they love in Malaysia is they love food. It's a big part of the culture. And of course, that's one of the reasons why uh, Mike was very excited to go. And they took us to all sorts of different restaurants. And I remember there was one particular restaurant where we had this really amazing meal. And then at the end of it, one of the, um, one of the people there who's hosting us took out this Tupperware that they brought with them. And they said inside this Tupperware is, is our favorite dessert. Um, and it's really the, the dessert that is the favorite of so many people who live in Malaysia. And he said it's called durin fruit. And then he opened the lid of the Tupperware and I was expecting there to be some kind of delicious smell that would, would flood out of this box. And there was a smell, but it wasn't delicious. It was, to my nose at least, um, horrible. It smelled like somebody had just been sick in the box. And I remember reacting and being like, oh, that is, please don't make me eat that. And they all had, all, all the Malaysians had this, these massive grins on their faces. We were not the first people from England that they had done this to. And they weren't joking. For, for them, it was this, it is this incredible um, flavour and this delicious taste that really is considered to be like a, a major treat. But um, for, for us, certainly for me, um, coming from England, the smell of it was absolutely horrible. Uh, and they enjoyed kind of watching our discomfort as we, as we took turns to kind of try it. And um, that, that happens whenever we go to a different culture in all sorts of different ways. It might be something as simple as a smell um, or a dessert that is something that in that culture, it's really like, oh, this is a real treat. But for us, it would be like, that is, I don't want to eat that. Um, but it, it's in all sorts of other ways as well. Things that are acceptable in one culture are confusing in another or even offensive in another. And if that's true when we get on a plane and we travel just for a few hours, how much more might we expect that to be the case when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven? The difference between Malaysia and the UK in terms of culture is far smaller than the difference between uh, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven that we enter when we say yes to following Jesus. And so because of that, we should expect, it should be something we consider normal, really, that there'll be things as we, as we um, discover what it is to live well in the kingdom of heaven that confuse us and that cause us to, to just be like, what? I, I don't understand that, that shock us even. And uh, there's a sermon that Jesus gives. It's become his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's in Matthew's chapter 5 to 7. And in it, he outlines what life in the kingdom looks like. He, he outlines kind of a, his expectations for how those of us who follow him are to live. And so much of it is shocking. And if it doesn't shock us, if it doesn't cause us to just pause... A need to process, a need to digest, then it's a sign that we haven't really absorbed what it is he's saying. So many of his most famous sayings um, come in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek. But the sermon series that we're beginning, we're just going to take the first um, little tiny chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a group of sayings that are called the Beatitudes. And we're going to look at them week by week, just taking one at a time. And these eight sayings, they all begin with the same word, blessed. Blessed are you. It's a Greek word, makarios, which is, which is notoriously hard to translate. 
but you could translate it, happy are you? Or even congratulations, or fortunate are you, or good on you. Um, it's, uh, and so each of the sayings, they, they, each of these blessings that Jesus announces, they begin uh, with that word. And for anyone who thinks life in the kingdom of God is dull and dry and somehow miserable and wretched, these sayings come like a bolt out of the blue because they're about joy. And that they're about not just kind of a, a, a fleeting, passing, momentary happiness that is so easily kind of, that's like, you know, a gust of wind and is there for a second and, and then gone. These sayings are about a deep, profound, lasting joy. A joy that cannot be stolen from us by circumstance or people. Um, and yet, they are about as upside down as it gets. As is, as is so much in the kingdom of heaven, or perhaps a better way of putting it is they're right side up, but to us they seem upside down. As we'll see in a minute when I read them, they don't, the, the blessings that Jesus is talking about here, they're not um, intuitive. They don't seem natural. They don't seem to make initially, when, when you hear them, much sense to us. But they're so worth, um, and this is why we're going to do it, sitting with and chewing on because really they are Jesus explaining um, the blessings that, that he has come to bring into the world and the blessings that we want to obviously receive. So uh, without further ado, let me read. Uh, I'm just going to read all the Beatitudes and then we're just going to look at the first one this week. This is Matthew chapter 5 starting in verse 3. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so our, um, our text this week is just Matthew 5 verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So first question, what does Jesus mean when he says poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Um, in, in Luke, where, where some of the Beatitudes are also recorded, the, the, Jesus says in Luke, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, meaning the materially poor. But here he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that, that to be poor in spirit, it speaks not of an external state, but of an internal one. And um, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable, a story that really I think gives us a great picture for what it looks like to be someone who's poor in spirit. It's a story of um, two men who approach God. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. And Jesus describes how both of them come to him. 
The Pharisee in the story is full of self-importance and he separates himself from everybody else in the temple and then he stands there um, sort of talking about how good he is. So he says, thank you that you haven't made me like all these other people. Thank you that I'm not like robbers, evildoers or adulterers or even that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. Uh, I give a tenth of all I have. So he's there in front of God sort of full of self-importance and puffed up. And then by contrast, we have the tax collector who stands uh, further away and externally, where the Pharisee seems to have got everything right on the surface, the tax collector seems to have got everything wrong. Just the very fact that he is a tax collector would have meant that he was ostracized, that people would have despised him, feared him, hated him because he was a betrayer of the people of Israel. He was working for the occupying Roman power. And, uh, and he's standing before God and Jesus says he can't even look up to heaven. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who is so embarrassed, so ashamed to be in that conversation, they can't even look you in the eye? That's the, that's the tax collector's disposition at this moment. He can't even look up to heaven. And instead of, of, of saying anything like the Pharisee, he just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes away justified before God. The tax collector who got it right, not the Pharisee. Um, And to be in a position where we are poor in spirit, um, another way of putting it is it's to to be like the tax collector where we're so conscious and so aware of our own need, of our own sin before God. Um, That's the thing that consumes us. And, And where some of the other Beatitudes, they talk about the positive presence of equality, whether it's the merciful or the pure of heart or the peacemakers. This isn't talking about the presence of equality, but the absence of equality. We're not rich in spirit. We're poor in spirit. This is about what we don't have. Um, it's it's uh, another way of putting it might be to know that you are spiritually bankrupt that all your inward spiritual resources have disappeared down the drain and that rather than just being neutral, rather than just being like, well, I'm not in credit, but, but at least I'm not in debt. I've got like a flat line, like a balanced bank sheet here. It's I am actually in debt. I am impoverished when it comes to having anything to offer God. Another way of putting it is it's to be desperate. It's to be conscious of our own need. It is to run out of all internal resources, to come to the end of ourselves, to be empty of self. To stand before him and know all we bring is debt and mess and sin. And Jesus says, if you are in this place, and this is where the Beatitudes are so upside down, he says, if you're in that place where that's, you know, that's where you're at, Congratulations. Blessed are you. And of course, the, 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 the reaction that for, for so many of us will be, you know, it certainly was for me when I'm looking at this, is, well, why is that something to be congratulated on? Why is that? That doesn't sound like a very happy place to be to me. Because who wants to be desperate? And who wants to be at the end of themselves? Nobody. Um, and this is not so often subconsciously how we think relationship with God is meant to work. I don't know about you, but I think it's meant to work on the basis of my gifts, 
on the basis of what I do bring positively. Here are my strengths, Lord. You know, I'm like the Pharisee. Here are all the things that I can do for you. Let's, let's work something out. And, and I'm doing that because I think, well, if I can bring something to the relationship, then I'll, you know, maybe I'll earn it. Maybe I'll deserve it. Maybe it will be mine. And um, man, do I miss day after day, the heart of the message of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, which is our relationship with God begins not with what we have, but what we don't have. That's where it starts. And the tax collector is a perfect picture. Um, he comes before him and he just says, I'm sinful. I just bring you my mess. Um, and Jesus is putting this at the start of the Beatitudes and at the start of the Sermon on the Mount really intentionally, I think. I, I don't know if you can picture somebody who you've got a, a friendship with or um, who you know, who you're just really aware because life has been perhaps so difficult for them um, because of some of the stuff that they, they, they've been through. They just bring into your friendship or your relationship need. They just bring a lot of need. And, and you know that in that relationship, it's going to require from you an awful lot of time, an awful lot of emotional energy, uh, and perhaps other things as well. Think of that. Jesus wants us to understand that when we come to God, we are that person. And um, the first step, the first rung, as it were, on the ladder of the Beatitudes is becoming aware of our need for God. The first step on the mountain of the Sermon on the Mount is, is this. Um, it's the foundation, really, of everything else that follows. The foundation of our relationship with God is knowing we need him. And so Jesus is saying, another way of translating this, this verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, are, is happy are those who know they need God. Happy are those who know they need God. Now, of course, the question then is, why are those people happy? Uh, why is that uh, something to be congratulated on and, and a blessed state? And of course, the answer comes in the second half of the verse, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. And there are so many moments in the Gospels where what we see is the kingdom of heaven is given to, to who? To those who know they need it. Not to those who deserve it, not to the Pharisees uh, so often who, who think they've earned it, just to those who know they need it. And so often, that point, if we read the stories of the Gospels, that point of, of the, the breaking out of the kingdom of heaven, like the inbreaking reality of, of God's goodness, it comes at a point of need. It comes at a point of, of lack. And that's when the miracles happen. So one of my favorite examples is the wedding uh, that Jesus is at at Cana in Galilee. In John chapter 2, you might be familiar with that story, but, but what happens is at the wedding, they run out of wine, and that's a big deal. Uh, that's a huge faux pas in that culture. And um, Jesus' mum comes to him, and she does not say, hey, Jesus, we're running short on wine. There's only, you know, a little bit of wine left. She literally just says to him, there is no more wine. We have absolutely no wine. The jars are empty. And at that moment, when the jars are totally and utterly empty, when there's not a drop of wine at the wedding reception, that is the moment where Jesus fills the jars to the brim with just a crazy quantity of the very best Chateau Neuf de Pape. It happens when there's no more wine. 
There's another example in Mark chapter 5. A woman who has a problem with bleeding and has had that problem for years and years. She, she finds Jesus in the crowd. And just before it, in Mark's introduction to, to the lady, the woman with the problem, he says of her that she'd spent everything she had on doctors. But instead of getting better, she'd gotten worse. So she had tried, as anyone would in her situation, to, to find healing. And she'd spent literally everything she had trying to get it. And actually what happened is rather than getting any better, her, her condition had deteriorated. She found herself in an even deeper hole. And at that moment, she turns to Jesus. She hears about him and she comes to him in the crowd and she just touches the edge of his cloak. I love it. She doesn't have the courage to go in front of him, but her need drives her to him anyway. Anyway, she can't almost keep herself back and just touches the edge of his clothes. She doesn't touch his hand. He doesn't look at her in that moment. He doesn't, he, she just touches the edge of his clothes. And this, um, this wave of wholeness pours out of Jesus and suddenly she's made whole. And it doesn't stop there because then he knows it's happened. He feels the power leave him. So he turns around in the crowd and says, who touched me? And the disciples say to him, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? It's like walking through, you know, the, the tube station at rush hour. We're all bumping into each other. How can you say who touched me? But you see, there are all these other people who are touching Jesus who are not touching him because of their need. They just happen to bump into him. They're not coming with desperation. They just happen to be there. They're interested in watching him do something spectacular. They're interested in a little miracle show. But what this woman wants is she wants to be healed. And so from that place of need, she reaches out and she's the one where the power comes. The kingdom of heaven breaks into her life. Happy are you if you know your need of God, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And when she steps out of the crowd and he looks at her, he says to her, this woman who would have again just been shoved in a corner because of her condition, because of what that meant for her. She was ceremonially unclean. She would have been hushed away. Relatives would have been embarrassed. He says to her, daughter. So, so she encounters not just healing of the body, but um, it's more than just restoration of the heart. It's this was, this, to, to know he calls her daughter was better than she'd ever had before anyway. It's like an improvement. And that's true of person after person in the stories of, of uh, the Gospels about Jesus. It's the people that come to him are the people that in many ways, they have, they have nowhere else to go. Um, that uh, The lepers find cleansing and, and the blind receive their sight and the lame begin to walk and even the dead come back to life again. Um, and I love that, that picture of the wine so much because it's, it's such a great image for us of the grace and the sheer mercy of God. When we bring a need, he doesn't just meet it to a sort of a, a very limited extent. We, we find that we are, because the wine, you know, he makes the equivalent of 800 bottles of red wine. <laughs> that is like over catering to a Pilavachi extent, but perhaps even more than that, he just lavishes it on them. Just the, and so for us, what, what Jesus is getting at, I think, in, in, in saying, look, if you know your need of him, yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's, if you're aware of your spiritual poverty, oh my word, do you, know, do you know about the richness of the blessing 
the goodness of the kingdom, the kindness of the savior, the mercy of the master, the grace of God is yours. That's why we're happy and that's why we're blessed when we find ourselves at this point of knowing nothing but our own need. Because it's so often when we are empty, he fills us. And when we're conscious of our need of him, we come to him. Now, for some of us, I know this last year has brought us to our knees. And it's, it's, it's perhaps made us more aware than we've ever been of our own spiritual poverty, that we really don't have it all together in the way that sometimes we think we do uh, when, when life's a bit easier. But for all of us, um, we will find ourselves at times, and I know I do regularly, drifting away from being really conscious of our spiritual poverty. Because it is our, our tendency to want to be independent from God. And that's been true since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, who decided that rather than living independence on his goodness and living uh, a relationship where there was that intimacy, they wanted to make it on their own. And they wanted to do it their way. That, that tendency is uh, still in our hearts. And it manifests itself in all sorts of ways. But one of the ways it does is even for, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, we can have a, a, um, a leaning towards focusing um, not on our need of God, but on the fact that we can do things by ourselves sometimes. That's, that's not a good place to be. Um, although we find ourselves regularly. So if you can translate the verse, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven as happy are those who know their need of God. You could also put it, the opposite would be unhappy are those who are depending on themselves. Does that, does that chime with you? Does that ring a bell? I know it does for me. Unhappy are those who are depending on themselves, who are trying to be self-sufficient. And sometimes we're doing it without even being aware of it. So um, if you read the letter to, uh, if you read Revelation, the book of Revelation, in, in there there's some messages that the risen Jesus gives to seven different churches. And there's a church in a place called Laodicea. And as part of this message that Jesus gives to them, he says this. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. Here's a church that thinks it's rich, but doesn't realize how poor it is actually, how pitiful and blind and naked it is. And in the context of this letter, it, that's where the famous verse, you may well be familiar with this verse, comes. Jesus says in verse 20 of chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So the picture we get of this church is a church that thinks it's rich, but is in fact poor. And a church where Jesus is outside the door. That's why he says, I stand at the door and knock. And if you open it, I'll come and eat with you. Um, he's outside the door. We've got a church here who basically doesn't think it needs Jesus. A church that's trying to do it without Jesus. And 
what happens when we do that is Jesus ends up on the other side of the door. Um, and, and for me, I know what that looks like in practice is when I'm trying to do life, but I'm basically, my, my hope, my courage, my expectations for what can happen, they all come down to my abilities and my gifting. And Jesus says of that church that you are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And at one point he says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That scares me. And, and I don't want to become a Christian who thinks I can do it without him. I want to do the opposite of that. I'm sure you're the same. Didn't we get into this for intimacy with him? Wasn't this always, always about how beautiful Jesus is? and how kind he is. That's why we got into it. And yet, and so let's be aware. We, we can, even knowing that, even that being the place we started from, we can have this tendency to, to awareness from him and we can get enamored with other things. Um, and the, the, if we find ourselves in that place, and if you can relate to this, then I think there's two things that can help us. The first one is to see again... Um, how precious he is because that's what that's what draws us to him um, what sheer undeserved grace we have when we receive him another story in the gospels is from Luke chapter 7 and this is where Jesus is having a meal with a bunch of Pharisees and there's a sinful woman she's called it in the gospels which is a euphemism for a prostitute almost certainly a prostitute is in the area and she hears Jesus is there so she brings this expensive bottle of perfume and she stands behind him at the meal and she starts weeping and her tears wet his feet and then she dries his feet with her hair and she pours perfume on his feet. It's this incredibly intimate moment and it would have been shocking. I mean, can you imagine if that happened at a dinner party you were at? I mean, we're in England. So we would have been like, we would have had to all go to the toilet or make an emergency phone call. But this is, again, even in that culture, this was, this was incredibly shocking what she was doing. And people were put out by this. They were offended by this. Doesn't Jesus know that this woman is a prostitute? Doesn't he know where she's been and what she's been getting up to? And, and Simon, whose house Jesus is at, you know, he just questions Jesus on this. And, um, and Jesus in, in verse 44 says to Simon, then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. There's lots of words you could use to describe that woman. Lukewarm isn't one of them. She knew how great her need was, but her response in this moment shows that she encountered the kingdom of heaven. She discovered how great his love was. And it's only when you're hungry that you really desire food. It's only when you're thirsty you desperately want to drink. It's only when you're sick that you go looking for medicine. And this woman knew in a way that sometimes we don't, the extent of her spiritual hunger 
her spiritual thirst and her spiritual sickness. And so when she encountered Jesus and she saw his face, she couldn't help but love him. And for all of us, as we seek to follow him, if we find ourselves having grown distant, having been attempting maybe for too long now to do it in our own strength, the solution is to see his face. It's to recognise again the extent of his love for us, to see that in his eyes. And as we do that, we'll, be mu- we'll become more conscious of our own spiritual poverty, but in a way that will lead us, knowing that he accepts us, to come back to him and to come to close to him and to lean on him and to depend on him. Um, I'm almost out of time, so I probably better finish there. But um, just to put it really simply, happy are those who know their need of God because God is never reluctant to meet us. In fact, all he wants to do is bless us. When we're conscious of our need, we encounter in him an ocean of grace, mercy and kindness. And then we live day after day after day, depending on that. And I will finish with this. You know, when little kids grow up, the whole point of how you raise them is that you raise them to become independent, that they would go off and, you know, be able to do things and stuff like that. Following Jesus and maturing in Jesus is not that. It's not about getting distant from him and now we can handle it because he sorted us out so we can go off in our own strength. No, it's about growing in our conscious dependence upon him. And the more we do that, the more joyful we will become. It's upside down. The more I'm aware of my need, the more joyful I become. Yes, because what happens when I'm aware of my need is I, I discover for myself in experience and in my life that he is so, so willing to meet that need to the point of total and complete abundance. Amen.